Life. What a rich treasure to be able out of our congregation with some friends to say, let's just pull together a horn choir and let them play. You did beautifully for us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. The, uh, before we do the preaching lesson, I invite you to join with me in the prayer of illumination. With one voice, let us pray together. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The preaching lesson today is from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and then moving into the first part of chapter 5. I've chosen uh, the message translation today, Eugene Peterson. Um, he makes Paul kind of fun. Uh, Paul isn't always fun, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good lesson. Uh, Paul's reminding uh, the folks that read his words the original ones in us, that even though things on the outside may look a little grim and, and depressing and dark, that there's hope, and that God is the light, God is the God of light and hope, and most especially resurrection. So Paul writes, and beginning with verse 7, if you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's you and me. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God has not left our side. We've been thrown down, but we have not broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are a constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. Well, we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. We're not keeping this quiet, not on your life, just like the psalmist who wrote, I believe it, so I said it. We say what we believe, and what we believe is that the one who raised up the master Jesus will just as certainly raise us up with you alive. Every detail works to your advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration that has been prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now, why, they'll last forever. For instance, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven, God-made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move, and so we cry out in frustration. 
Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfinished shack, and we're tired of it. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jonathan Kahn, New York Times best-selling author, has written a fascinating book entitled The Book of Mysteries. The book is set up as a daily devotion detailing unique mystery as revealed by the teacher who lives and teaches in an ascetic school setting in a desert village in the Middle East. Gary Weaver gave me a copy of this book. He said he was reading it and thought about me, and I've been fascinated with the insights that Khan shares with his readers. Now, this particular lesson came to the author not in the classic uh, classroom time, but rather in the middle of the night. And so I quote, the teacher came to my room and woke me up. Come, said the teacher, it's time for the lesson. We're going outside. I was half asleep and not thrilled, but of course, I complied. He led me to a hill where we sat down in the darkness of the night. Which comes first, the teacher asked, the day or the night? The day, I answered sleepily, night comes when the day is over. Well, yes, that's what most people would say, and that's how most people in the world see it. Day leads to night. But that's not how God sees it. What do you mean? If the day leads into night, then everything goes from light to darkness. Everything gets darker. Everything is in the process of darkening. And that would appear to be the way of the world. We go from day to night, from youth to aging, from strength to weakness, and ultimately from life to death, day to night. It's the way of the world, but it is not God's way. When God created the universe, it was not day and night. Remember what was written? And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The day began with the night. There was night, and then there was day. It is the night that comes first. Oh, so that's why all Jewish holidays begin at sunset. Yes, and not only holidays, but every biblical day. Each day begins with the sunset. There is evening, there is morning. The world moves from day to night. But in God, it's quite the opposite. It goes from night to day, from darkness to light. The children of this world live from day to night, but the children of God live from night to day. They are born again in the darkness and move to the day. And so if you belong to God, then that is the order of your life. You are to go from darkness to light from weakness to strength, 
from guilt to innocence, from tears to joy, from death to life, and from despair to hope. And every night in your life will lead to the dawn, and that is hope. But how do we experience that, Pastor Bob, you ask? We experience it precisely because of what we read in Paul's letter to the Corinthians towards the end of the lesson. God planted a little bit of heaven in each heart. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Yeah, he died in 2009, but it's left a lasting legacy on the American culture with his radio news programs carried on over 1,200 stations for over 50 years. And most of us remember that particular segment for which he was most especially known, the rest of the story. You know, Harvey would describe a very interesting individual or a situation, but he wouldn't tell the name or, the, or name the situation until the very end, and then he would reveal the surprise with his signature line, and now you know the rest of the story. In our scripture lesson for today, St. Paul begins from the position that his, his readers already believe and know the rest of the story of Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection. See, they, and they've begun to understand God's time moves from darkness to light, from crucifixion to resurrection. They, they've made that switch. And Paul is reinforcing the idea that he had previously shared with those Corinthians and so this letter is confident, it's optimistic, it's hopeful, no matter, as he describes the current reality in which he lives, which is anything less than hopeful. Peterson translates Paul's words, God's put a little bit of hope and get a little bit of heaven into our hearts. Now, the truth is, as believers, we still live in the real world, and our days are numbered. Almost imperceptibly they pass by and, and our years increase incrementally. They seem to go faster when you get past a certain age, but before you know it, our little preschoolers have grown up and you know what? They graduated from high school the last couple of weeks. And even before you can snap your fingers, those 2018 grads that we've been so proud of, well, they'll be finished with college and graduate school. They'll have jobs. Some will be married. They'll be settled. Some will drive upscale SUVs. Others will be driving sports cars. And just look around as you go through your daily life and see our working colleagues who are retiring. And that's a good thing. But the bad thing is they're beginning to nurse an increasing array of age-related aches and pains. I don't know about you, but Paul hits the nail on the head when he reminds us that when we look in the mirror, we see that our outward nature is beginning to waste away. And as our own mortality becomes a more ever-present reality, moment by moment, thoughts of decay can sometimes have an overwhelming power and force on us and begin to dominate our view of the future in such a way that our hope begins to grow faint it really does begin to look like we're actually heading very quickly to the inevitable darkness and death that the world has predicted all along. You can't have missed the two very prominent suicides this past week 
New York fashion designer Kate Spade, chef turned popular TV host Anthony Bourdain, both ended their own lives. From what we could see on the outside, both looked like they had everything going for them, but not so. And the headline of the paper this past week, Federal Report was released, showing Ohio's suicide rate rose by 36% between the years 1999 and, and 2016. And that means for every 100,000 Ohioans, 16 of them took their own lives every year. And that works out to an average of five a day, or one every five hours. And that's the rate that continues. Isn't that sad? Now we know that mental illness, diagnosed or not, is a major contributing factor to why people commit suicide, but some of that research also showed that there was almost a quarter of the folks that had absolutely no indication of any mental health problems. There are other risk factors, including broken home, broken relationships, homelessness, job loss, the despair that comes with physical health problems, a crisis such as a legal crisis, there is darkness in our world that leads to all kinds of problems and to too many suicides. And people of faith sometimes succumb to this as well. So you and I need to be on the alert and listening to those who are around us, doing what we can to hear their hurt and to acknowledge that there's something deeper going on. We, we have to be honest with ourselves sometimes, too, to acknowledge that we might need some help. I'd like you, if you, you have a, there are pens in the backs of the pews, and some of you have them with you, or if you have your cell phone with you, would you get it out right now? I want you to take a number down. I don't, I don't want to just talk about suicide without giving you some practical help. This is the number. I want you to take down this number. It's 614-221. 5445. I hope you never have to call it, but it's the Franklin County Suicide Prevention Number. And if you're with someone and you begin to hear that they're in really serious trouble, you may want to call that number. You want to stay with them? You want to make sure that if they have a purpose or have a plan for, for killing themselves, that you get that away from them. You stay with them. You call 911. You get them to the hospital. It's a medical emergency. We, we can't not do all we can. We have to be the ones that stand in the place. The Apostle Paul offers a timeless message that refuses to surrender the bleak outlook of this world even though on the outside it also often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, on the inside, God is making a new life, and not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. See, we have that message of hope that we can offer and that we can learn to hear. Paul goes on to say we're not giving up, and he claims that even in the midst of this difficulty, that God's still active, and we have to claim that as well. Paul, Paul's affirmation comes at the conclusion of a passage in which he summarizes the troubles that he and his co-workers have faced. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, 
but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, he writes, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God has not left our side. We've been thrown down, but we're not broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. I must confess I might have been tempted to give in. Except what he says, what Jesus did among them, he does among us. He lives. Now some might call St. Paul the eternal optimist. We certainly have a need for optimism in our world today. It's part of what helps us with personal progress. We need to begin to be able to imagine better realities. We need to keep in touch with that little bit of heaven planted in our hearts. Without optimism, writes Tali Shero, our ancestors might never have ventured far from their tribes and we might all be cave dwellers still huddled together just dreaming of light and heat. As a human race, we are generally tilted toward optimism. Now, optimism, particularly when it's tied to ultimate outcomes, is the synonym for hope, which is a word that has very strong religious dimensions. C.S. Lewis, mid-20th century Oxford professor, a broadcaster, theologian, collected and published a series of inspirational radio broadcasts and has been collected in the book that we have now consider a, a devotional classic, Mere Christianity. This is what Lewis writes about hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues, you know, faith, hope, and love. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people might think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, no. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves sparked the very conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the, Eng the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied by heaven. And he goes parenthetically and he says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. That's a reminder, that's a warning. And then he goes back and he says, Aim at heaven, and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Any idea when he first made that public statement, when those words were delivered? It was the beginning of World War II, arguably one of the darkest hours for Great Britain. And he offers this foundational word for hope. St. Paul writes of the realities of his own present, of own persecution in the first century world. He says, these hard times are, are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. See, he's got his eyes fixed on that heavenly banquet. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things you can't see, they'll last forever. Wishful thinking? No. 
That is his hope grounded in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. That little bit of heaven planted in our hearts and the certainty that God's time moves from darkness to light, moves from death to resurrection. Now, if we were to limit ourselves just to the evidence of this existence, where right seems to win only some of the time, you could probably make a pretty good case for pessimism, even for hopelessness, despair. St. Paul, actually, in his first letter uh, to the Corinthians, responded to some who said that, that Christ hadn't even been raised from the dead. Now, the apostle writes and says, now, if that's the case, then their faith was futile, and he adds, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christianity does not bank on what we can make of this life alone. You see, we're called to live into the truth of Jesus' resurrection because, my friends, we know the rest of the story. And remember, living by hope is what we're meant to do as believers. Folks send me emails of pictures of all kinds of church signs. You know, the ones with the misspelling and the misplaced words. Um, this one doesn't use the word hope, and there's no misspelling, but this really describes a pastor who understands the real meaning of hope. Across the top, it says, it must have been Lutheran church because it says, evenings at 7 p.m. in the parish hall. I think Lutherans call the parish hall. We call it the fellowship hall. 7 o'clock in the parish hall. And then down the side is a listing of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday, Alcoholics Anonymous. Tuesday, Abused Spouses. Wednesday, Eating Disorders. Thursday, Say No to Drugs. Wednesday, Friday, Teen Suicide Watch. Saturday, Soup Kitchen. And then in bigger letters across the bottom, Sunday's Sermon, 9 a.m., Our Joyous Future in Christ. Now, the church must be absolutely realistic about the difficulties of life, but we must also insist that those difficulties are not what define us. They don't tell whose we are. They don't describe where we're headed. We do have a joyous future in Christ. And our understanding and our image of heaven that draws us is the motivation that helps us to make an impact and make a change here on earth. This hope that clings to us is, is not based on a mere bright outlook, but on the promises of God that are actually found in Scripture. Referring specifically to the Old Testament, Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that the Hebrew Bible voices the oldest, deepest, most resiliently grounding of hope of all human history a hope that has been claimed by both Jews and Christians. That hope articulated in ancient Israel is not a vague optimism or generic good idea about the future, but a precise and concrete confidence in an expectation for the future that is rooted explicitly in God's promises to Israel. What are those promises? They are the ones made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They are the ones made to Sarah and Elizabeth and Ruth. And they are simple and straightforward and they are ours. I will be your God and you will be my people. We can say amen to that while adding that the New Testament articulates a precise and concrete confidence in 
and expectation for the future that is grounded explicitly in God's promises to all who follow Jesus. So every time we reaffirm uh, the affirmations of the Christian tradition, such as the Apostles' Creed, we're hearing the testimony of those who literally stake their lives on hope. When we repeat those words, we declare our belief in the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, in the life everlasting. According to Paul, his conviction about the future, they're all warranted because we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents, and folded away. They're going to be replaced by resurrection, resurrection bodies in heaven, God-made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents again. For Paul, God has not and will not abandon us. Even though our bodies decay and die, we will not remain homeless, because my friends, there's a new dawn coming, because light follows the darkness. We're getting new bodies made by the very hands of God. We get a resurrection body, and I want one with hair. <laughs> so when someone asks you, which comes first, the day or the night, remember you're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter of the light. And you've got a little bit of heaven planted in your heart. As a believer, live according to God's sacred order of time, evening and morning, always, always moving from the darkness into the light. That is Christian hope. Will you close your eyes with me for a moment? Remember last Sunday when Pastor Lou told you about psychologist Barry Schwartz who wrote that hopeful people are by nature system changers. I'd like you to think about your life from Barry's perspective to today. And be honest, what darkness are you experiencing this morning? Maybe it's the darkness of fear or, or an unconfessed sin or of a difficult relationship or a sense of impending doom about some medical condition. In the quiet of this moment, ask the Lord of Light to help you turn away from your darkness and live into the hope fostered by that little bit of heaven that God has planted in your heart. And what about the people in your sphere of influence who are stuck in darkness? People that you know that are in the darkness of addiction or poverty, or loneliness, or abuse, or discouragement. Remember, hopeful people are system changers. What steps do you need to take so that you can offer hope and light to that beloved member of your family, or your coworker, or your neighbor, or that homeless person you pass regularly with the cardboard sign, or that person you read about on the internet? Pray to the Lord of light and ask to be equipped, energized, and encouraged so that you can begin to be about your father's business of planting a little bit of heaven in someone's hurting, darkened heart.
We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen.